0: Welcome to the markets. Hello again, along with Max Armstrong. I'm Orion Samuelson here for our weekly look at market activity from Wall Street to livestock feedlots to wheat, corn, and soybean fields. We do this every week. We appreciate your company and thank you very much for listening. And we begin the story of this week's market activity on Wall Street, where the stock market fell today after reports... The Trump administration was considering delisting Chinese companies from U.S. stock exchanges. That raised worries about a further escalation in the U.S.-China trade war, but we've been watching those worries uh, ebb and tide uh, for the past year, it seems. One day, markets go down because of concern over the China situation. The next day, oh, something a little bit better on the China-U.S. trade talks and the market goes up. But today, the move, if taken by the Trump administration, would be part of a broader effort to limit U.S. investment in Chinese companies. High-level trade talks between Washington and Beijing now scheduled to take place in Washington, D.C., October 10 and 11, if the uh, before the start of the U.S. third quarter earnings season, one analyst today, Michael O'Rourke in Greenwich, Connecticut, said, "If our policies spark a major sell-off in Shanghai, where that creates problems for China, that could negatively impact the trade negotiations getting underway October 10. That is where the U.S.-based fear would originate." The tariff-sensitive Philadelphia Semiconductor Index extended its decline after the reports ended down 2.4 percent on the day, that index already under pressure from Micron Technology, which tumbled after it forecast a disappointing first-quarter profit. The S&P Technology Index down one and a third percent today, and the numbers... The Dow down 70 points, ending at 26,820. The S&P 500 down 16 points, ending the day and the week at 2,961. And the NASDAQ composite dropped 91 points to end the day and the week at 7,939. All three indices ended lower for the week as well, with the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ registering their biggest weekly percentage drop since August. Shares of Wells Fargo, though, went up 3.8%. That stock was the top gainer in the S&P 500 after the lender named banking veteran Charles Scharf as chief executive officer data early in the day showed u.s consumer spending barely rose in august and that suggested to some traders the economy's main growth engine was slowing after accelerating sharply in the second quarter so for the day declining issues outnumbered advancing issues by a 1.3 to 1 ratio On NASDAQ, it was a 1.9 to 1 ratio that favored the decliners. And the S&P 500 posted 11 new 52-week highs and 6 new lows. Volume on U.S. exchanges today, 6.6 billion shares compared to the 7.2 billion average for the full session over the last 20 trading days. Checking uh, the oil market today, oil prices down, posted a weekly loss on a faster-than-expected recovery in Saudi Arabia's output, and, of course, investors worried about global crude demand amid slowing Chinese economic growth. During what turned out to be a volatile session, Brent crude down 83 cents, ending the day and the week at $61.91 a barrel, after dropping to a session low of $60.76. West Texas U.S. crude futures down 50 cents, ending at $55.91 a barrel. And for the week, Brent down 3.7%. That's the biggest weekly loss since early August. U.S. crude lost 3.6%, its steepest loss since mid-July. And crude futures, along with other higher-risk assets, after news that U.S. government is considering the possibility of delisting Chinese companies from U.S. exchanges, the crude futures did go down. But now, We'll stop looking back, and we'll start looking ahead. On the U.S. economic calendar, Friday of this coming week, nonfarm payrolls for September are expected to rise to 145,000 from 130,000 the month before. Market manufacturing PMI data for September scheduled for release on Tuesday, Market services and composite PMI expected on Thursday and factory orders for August expected Thursday as well, likely to have dropped three-tenths of a percent after going up 1.4 percent the previous month. Friday, the Census Bureau likely to report the trade deficit widened to $54.5 billion in August. And that would be up from 54 billion in July. Thursday, of course, we get the weekly unemployment report. The labor department expected to show initial jobless claims for the week ended September 28th rose to 215,000. That would only be an increase of 2,000 from the previous week. Tuesday, the Census Bureau is expected to report construction spending went up four-tenths of a percent in August. Scheduled for the same day, the ISM Manufacturing Purchasing Managers Index likely will come in at 50.1% for this month of uh, September, following the previous month's reading of 49.1. And on Wednesday of next week, the ADP National Employment Report expected to show 140,000 private sector jobs were added in September. That would be fewer than the 195,000 added the month before. Earnings reports? Well, a couple, I guess, but we're not into the earnings report season yet for about a week. But PepsiCo expected to post an increase in third-quarter revenue with sales boosted by growing demand for healthy snacks and beverages. Separately, Constellation Brands likely to post an increase in quarterly sales in the second quarter, helped by demand for its Modelo Especial and Corona Premier beers. However, profit is expected to fall due to the company's investment in Canada's pot company, Canopy Growth. Costco wholesale corporations' quarterly profit and revenue are expected to go up when they report later this coming week thanks to a strong range of merchandise in stores and growth in private label brands. Again next week, uh, governors, regional governors of the Federal Reserve will be busy on the speaking circuit again, both nationally and internationally. And uh, looking to our neighbors to the north, Statistics Canada on tuesday likely to report that canada's gdp grew at a tenth of a percent in july so a lot to be watching but uh, certainly not into the heavy third quarter earnings report season that's due to come out uh, well in a week or two U.S. consumer spending barely rose in August, suggesting the economy's growth, the main growth engine slowing after accelerating sharply in the second quarter. And sales of new U.S. single-family homes rebounded more than expected in August. That's maybe the latest sign that The struggling housing market was starting to get a lift from the lower mortgage rates. The Commerce Department said on Wednesday that new home sales increased 7.1 percent to a seasonally adjusted annual rate of 713,000 units last month. Economists polled by Reuters had forecast new home sales, which account for about 11.5% of housing market sales. They saw it increasing 3.5% to a pace of 660,000 units in August. The median new house price rose 2.2%. That put it at $328,400 in August, and so that's an increase there. Lower mortgage rates that stimulated the U.S. housing market and apparently beginning to uh, show a little strength in that market that has certainly had its ups and downs. (laughs) Maybe not a good week to uh, have been a corporate executive, eBay Chief Executive Officer Devin Wenig stepped down midweek, citing differences with the company's recently revamped board, which is looking to sell some of its businesses. He has been the online auction and retail site CEO for four years, but he said in a tweet, in the past few weeks it became clear that I was not on the same page as my new board Whenever that happens, it's best for everyone to turn the page over. And Juul, not the food company, but the vaping company, J-U-U-L, the boss of Juul, exited in the vaping crisis as well because of some of the demands coming on that industry from Capitol Hill asking them or almost ordering them to stop placing ads for vaping on radio, television, or in print. Some companies will be writing fairly big checks. Fiat Chrysler Automobiles and its U.S. unit will pay $40 million for misleading investors about its monthly sales figures and will resolve a lengthy probe by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. And Milan. Will pay a thirty million dollars civil fine to settle securities and exchange commission charges that it concealed a possible loss related to a federal probe on whether it overcharged Medicaid by hundreds of millions of dollars for sales of its EpiPen auto injector. And speaking of writing checks, Boeing settled its first lawsuits for the Leon or for the Lion Air crash. Uh, It looks like the families of those killed will receive about $1.2 million apiece from the Boeing company time to take a look at the agricultural trade, and we're going to do that when we continue on
1: the markets. Your best defense against breast cancer is a mammogram. I'm Dr. Sandy Goldberg, a breast cancer survivor and founder of a Silver Lining Foundation, An early detection saved my life. Are you uninsured? Are you underinsured? Are you a survivor and need follow-up testing? Feel like you have nowhere to turn? Times are tough, but getting a mammogram should be. Call us at 312-345-1322. A Silver Lining Foundation is here to help.
2: Joe Camp from AgriVisor joining us in the studio this weekend. Good to see you, sir. Good day, Max. I I, I don't see helmet hair, so I don't think you rode the motorcycle, but you did take a, a quite a few days out on the bike this summer to check on crops, didn't you?
3: That's right. Four wheels on the road this morning, but I had a two-wheel trip two weeks. I touched 10 states starting in Illinois and moving east into the ravaged area of the northeast corn belt. And we came back into Illinois, up into Wisconsin, Iowa, down into Missouri, even poking into Nebraska, on back into Illinois. So I got a good look at the central Midwest this summer.
2: What stands out in your mind, in retrospect, looking back at that? Uh, as you, know, you continue to, to hear from growers what's going on, and as we look at weekly
3: crop bulletins, what stands out? Two things. One is the variability of this crop. We've heard that term bouncing around a lot lately, but it's a stark contrast to the previous two years when consistency was the name of the game, and it was that consistency across the Corn Belt that in 2017 and 2018 allowed U.S. producers to achieve record national yield averages for the corn crop. That's one thing, the variability. Of course, the eastern Corn Belt, very different than the west, and then even in the western Corn Belt, where there's some good crops... Uh, we're seeing the variability across you know two sides of the same road. So variability for one, the next thing is that even good corn looked good, but I had this feeling uh, uh, riding many miles afterwards, thinking to myself, the corn that looks good looks good for a month ago, and that just goes to show you how delayed this crop is.
2: That has been the lingering uh, impression that we've had, even in recent days, you know, when you drive by some of the fields. As we are starting to see some harvesting going on, what kind of reports are coming in from the combine cab to you in these, these early uh, field openings that have taken place, and some have really gotten into the harvest in earnest in, in a few locations? What are you hearing?
3: Unfortunately, some disappointment. Now we'll say it's very early yet. Right. We, we we talk about in Illinois, the crop uh, being less than five percent harvested. But we're starting to get more indication of what's out there and what isn't. We should see, uh, for the most part, some of these early yields translated to some silage cutting. Uh, But once we get into some of the better crops, uh, hopefully we see an improvement in these yields. But the early going, uh, some disappointment there, even relative to expectations, which were tempered this year coming into harvest.
2: Is it likely, though, that yields will get better as this harvest goes on? Uh, Some of
3: us are wondering about that. It seems to be the adage of big crops getting bigger also applies and vice versa. That is, that small crops get smaller from the sense that In September, we saw the USDA analysts start to move lower on their corn yield estimate. The same thing for soybeans. We feel like that's a trend we might continue to see. We're not going to see drastic reductions, we don't believe. Nothing like we feared early in this season. But we can see a downward trend uh, for these USDA yield estimates as we start to get in the field and realize that the variability just won't allow us to have uh, quite the trend-beating crop that we've enjoyed in the previous couple of summers.
2: These warm days of September sure have been welcome, haven't they?
3: Yeah, we look at the two-week outlook, and it looks as if this uh, little prolonged summer will continue. But it's biased Towards the eastern Corn Belt, we do see up in the northwest some areas of concern for that early frost freeze threat. We know there's several million acres at risk, corn not having reached maturity yet. And so if we get into this weekend and start to see some uh, sub-30 degree temperatures in states like Minnesota or North Dakota, we're going to be back to thinking about just how early this uh, harvest could, could end for us.
2: We've seen in recent days very little movement in prices. What's it going to take? I mean, is is even a frost scare going to light up this
3: market at all? Not just yet, I don't believe. That might help uh, encourage the bulls to do some buying, but it's wait and see for all traders, whether you're bullish or bearish. The speculators aren't willing to take a big position on a directional bet one way or the other, and the farmer not having any interest in selling at these levels and so not being a big market participant. With that being the case, what we'd expect is that we can uh, have a trade that stays somewhat stagnant until we get fresh data. The first opportunity for that would be Monday when we have a grain stocks report, small grain summary, and also a chance for the USDA to update its production estimate for the soybean crop last year. So, data would help. That would follow up with uh, the next October report. We would expect big revisions to acreage. And then, other than that, I mean, that's the supply side. We're just simply waiting on a more harvest results. On the demand side, Waiting for progress on these uh, mini trade deals still open, particularly, of course, U.S. China.
2: Back to that October crop report. In that October crop report, do you expect to see significant acreage revisions?
3: We better. <laughs> I would sure expect so because USDA coming in August and leaving it in September, the harvested acres as a percentage of planted, uh, 91.1%. That's a normal year. Let's let's use some discretion here and start to pick away at the harvested acres, knowing that we're going to have failed acres, that we're going to have to take out uh, ample uh, corn that, uh, that was planted for silage and just generally cover crops for both corn and soybeans. Remember, the government allowed those um, uh, to, to be planted this year.
2: On that demand side, we have seen some China soybean purchases. Uh, is this what they promised to buy, what we were told they would be buying many months ago?
3: So far, they are living up to their most recent promise, which was to do some buying in front of the next round of face-to-face negotiations that will take place in early October. They have an estimated buying interest of about 6 million tons here, maybe even up to 10 million uh, before this uh, next meeting or during these negotiations. And we have seen those sales, as you mentioned here in the recent days, starting to stack up. Uh, finally, to to what was committed to a couple of weeks ago. We're
2: seeing some trade negotiating progress. We got the word of uh, the deal with Japan this week. Of course, they are a very good customer. They have been year in and year out. I think we are the the top soybean supplier for them, supplying about two-thirds of what they buy from the world. Uh, Do these tend to uh, encourage, you think, a positive outcome of the the Chinese talks?
3: They may, but whether we're talking about U.S.-Japan or even USMCA, NAFTA 2.0, we've still got to get these deals to the finish line. Yeah. We continue to see announcements that a deal is 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 agreed to, but you have to put it into effect. You have to implement it. And to do that, we have to get it through our legislator, starting with USMCA. But the same considerations can be made for China, for Japan, and, and, and for other countries that we'll be looking to uh, renew our deals with. The fact that We've got to put it to the finish line, and that takes a a coordinated effort not just uh, by the president's administration but, of course, by Congress too. You talked a little bit
2: earlier uh, about the exports and some of the purchases taking place. Uh, We've seen a stronger dollar of late, and that doesn't help, does it?
3: No, not at all. The dollar is a safe haven play for investors that are skittish because of things like Brexit going on, so f- uh, c- coming out of the euro and the pound currencies and into the dollar uh, for a flight to quality type move. And you also have the dollar rising because sh- short-term treasury rates, interest rates are firmer. Also a safe haven play. when you've got uncertainty investors do around the world, they're going to come into the US market, want to pick up. US bonds and other U.S. investments, well, they need dollars to do that. The dollar has been rising towards multi-year highs, and that hurts exports, makes our grain more expensive to world buyers, especially when you have our dollar moving higher, not only against the currencies in the hands of our customers, but in the hands of our competitors, too. So we look at the South American currencies, the Brazilian real, the Argentine peso, they're at multi-year lows. That makes their goods less expensive to the global buyers and crowds our exporters out of the market, unfortunately.
2: Judging by your response a little bit earlier when I asked you about acreage and, uh, and an adjustment in October, um, I sense that you share the view of a lot of farmers about how USDA has handled numbers this year. Number one, has there been irreparable damage done to the, uh, the image of USDA with its reports? And number two, does it matter?
3: I believe there has been damage, and yes, there was frustration whether or not it matters. We'll have to see if there can be any change carried out uh, in the wake of what was almost, I'd call it, a calamity this year, starting with that August report. I know it's an unprecedented year, so we have to cut some slack to the government analysts, but we know they used discretion to to release these numbers, and they had room, uh, in my mind, uh, to leave the corn yield unchanged, for example, coming into that August report given the fact that they had come into this year saying that even in a normal year, we're not going to put our crop scouts out in the field until September because it's just too early in August to tell. Well, was it too early to to tell in this August? I'd say absolutely so. And and to some argument, it's that, okay, it's only the output of our farmer surveys and our our weather-adjusted trend models. That's fine, but I'd say look at the soybean number, which uh, came into August unchanged. Did those producer surveys and the weather-adjusted trend... Produced the exact same uh, 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 soybean bushel to, to the tenth of a, a bushel or, or did they use their discretion to leave it unchanged and, and should they have done that with corn? Yes. And then on the acres side, not necessarily the acres as a whole, which the FSA has since, you know, for the most part proven, uh, but the harvested acres as a percentage of the total uh, was just, uh, um, you know, hard to reconcile for us. Do
2: you think USDA will be sensitive to this? Do you think they will listen? You know, they, they routinely, I guess, have a user's conference where they they ask for input. Um, but what's your sense about this? Uh, obviously, it's their numbers that matter. No matter how much the private trade, how much you analysts want to come out with, with mm-hmm. your own estimates, it's USDA numbers that really matter at the end of the day.
3: I think so. I think they're working to... Increased transparency. We saw that there was a supplemental report following the August numbers that sort of trued up uh, what was coming from the FSA with those NAS numbers. And that's the effort that we need is just to push towards greater transparency in the methodology used for those reports.
2: Joe, it's good to see you. Thanks for coming in.
3: Thanks so much.
1: Joe Camp with AgriVisor. Your best defense against breast cancer is a mammogram. I'm Dr. Sandy Goldberg, a breast cancer survivor and founder of A Silver Lining Foundation. And early detection saved my life. Are you uninsured? Are you underinsured? Are you a survivor and need follow-up testing? Feel like you have nowhere to turn? Times are tough, but getting a mammogram shouldn't be. Call us at 312-345-1322. A Silver Lining Foundation is huge. Here to help.
0: Let's start the story with snow because it's getting to be that time of the year. A weekend storm poised to bring more than a foot of snow to parts of Montana and the Canadian prairies. That'll put portions of the region's spring wheat and canola crops at risk. Excessively wet conditions in the region this month have already slowed field work. It's hurt spring wheat quality on both sides of the border. But snow expected to fall from Saturday night through Monday, dumping 12 to 20 inches across southern Alberta and southwest Saskatchewan, and a few areas close to the U.S. border likely to receive 18 inches through Monday, that time of the year. And then another story that made news this week, Brazil. This week, shipped 60,000 tons of corn to the United States, an unusual export destination given the fact that the country is the largest producer and exporter of corn. The shipment, the first from Brazil to the U.S. this year, was exported by Cargill. That sometimes happens because they ship corn into the eastern part of the country and it's almost cheaper to haul it there from Brazil than it is to haul it from the Midwest and west on east to livestock producers who are in need of the corn. So that made some news. But making more news this week, China's top diplomat said Thursday that China was willing to buy more U.S. products and said trade talks would yield results if both sides, quote, take more enthusiastic measures to show goodwill and reduce, quote, pessimistic language in their trade dispute. China's state conciliator and foreign minister said in response to questions that the Trump administration had shown goodwill by waiving tariffs on many Chinese products, and that's why they're willing to buy more. And shortly after that announcement, another purchase of soybeans by China, 126,000 tons to China, and that coming from the current marketing year. And maybe some progress on the Canada-U.S.-Mexico trade agreement. The House of Representatives proceeding with work on a trade agreement with Mexico and Canada. That, according to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, whose support is key to getting that agreement passed into law. And House Democrats and discussed the pact on Wednesday, and she said, we're moving ahead on the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. We're again hoping to be on a continuing path to yes, to improve the deal aimed at replacing what I like to call NAFTA II. Uh, it would replace the NAFTA One North American Free Trade Agreement. When we look at the market story, again, some expectations that may or may not occur. But soybean and corn futures eased as traders uh, position ahead of the U.S. grain stocks report that will be coming up next week. And in livestock trade, live and feeder cattle futures today climbed to their highest uh, prices seen in nearly a month cash market began to firm, and traders grew more bullish about export demands after the U.S. and Japan signed a limited trade deal this week. The first phase deal would open up Japanese markets to some $7 billion worth of U.S. products annually, cutting Japanese tariffs on American beef, pork, wheat, and cheese, according to the announcement made by the Trump administration. And so for the week, uh, the uh, October live cattle contract, uh, well, it gained $2.25 a hundredweight today. And the lean hog contract, though, down 60 cents a hundredweight. Once again, time is gone. Thank you for joining us, along with Max Armstrong. I'm Orion Samuelson on the markets.